Welcome to Bad Table Talk. I'm your host, Oliver Niehaus, and this is where we break down all of the current news and talk about everything you aren't supposed to talk about at the dinner table. That being politics, religion, money, and more. My goal with this series is to provide easy-to-listen, informative segments addressing the most pressing issues we face, and to start much-needed conversations as a result. As always, thanks go out to my friend Oscar Gregg for providing the music you hear, and you should all check out his single Acrobats, which will be linked in the podcast notes below. If you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. And feel free to also share your thoughts with me via email, which is linked below as well. So sit back and relax while I talk about how utterly f***ed we are as a country. (laughs) I'm totally kidding. Sort of. All joking aside, regardless of where you stand politically, I hope everyone is motivated by what they hear to research more about these issues and feels ready to contribute to making our nation a better place for everyone. Thank you and please enjoy. Hello everyone, welcome to Bad Table Talk. I'm your host, Oliver Niehaus, and in this segment, we will be going over Donald Trump's platinum plan for re-election, basically his supposed plan to help African Americans in his second term. Um, I find this a little bit comical, considering the fact that it's very clear he does not care about African American lives, or any American lives for that matter, considering he's let a global pandemic ravage the country, which has disproportionately infected and killed African Americans due to many disparities in um, health care and the fact that they are more like be frontline workers. I'll get into that later. But um, in general, overall, I think it will be interesting to go through this and kind of take a look at some of his policies and how a lot of this is misleading or simply him just restating promises and claims that he made back in 2016 that really haven't come to fruition. So obviously, we can't get to everything in this because this is a pretty extensive list. So I'm going to pick some of them that I think are most important and we can go through and discuss some of these policies. So um. I'll bring this down. Just want to mention, um, if you are currently listening to this in podcast form on my podcast, that is absolutely great. And I think you'll enjoy it. But if you have the ability or if you want to, this is just another option is to go watch this. You'll see me. You'll see what I have on screen. I'm screen sharing um, many different graphs as well as the entire policy itself. And I think you might find that to be a little bit more engaging. So whatever you so choose is obviously um, up to you, but I think you might enjoy that. Um, Links to both my YouTube and my Instagram are down below if you want to go check the videos out. Obviously, you won't be missing out anything. I will be reading everything off screen so that you'll be able to completely understand what's going on via audio, via podcast. But um, you may enjoy watching it as well. So I just want to throw out that option. So um, in that same vein, let's bring this down and let's discuss Donald Trump's platinum plan. So his plan basically is broken down into four separate categories in general. Um, if we take a look at um, some of his categories, they are labeled as opportunity, security, prosperity, and fairness. So if we get first into opportunity, I'm going to kind of go through these more in depth, kind of just the phrases or how, how he states or what he says under each of the pillars, and then we'll get into some of the some of the specifics and details. So if we look at opportunity in particular, um, what it says here is opportunity. By achieving historic employment levels for black Americans, as well as increasing access to capital for new businesses, President Trump has been committed to ensuring all black Americans can achieve the American dream. Well, this is misleading. And the reason this is misleading is because let's take a look at the unemployment rate, the black unemployment rate over the past 10 years. So looks like you guys should, if you can, see a graph on here. This is basically the unemployment rate for African-Americans over the past um, 10 years. If we take a look, this gray section, um, if you're watching, if not, there is a gray section on this graph that basically shows the 2008 recession. If we see, obviously, there is a very large spike in unemployment, obviously, as what happens with any recession. But basically, what happens is um, Barack Obama is elected president during the recession. The um, unemployment rate hits 16.8% here. 
And Obama brought the unemployment rate from March 2010, 16.8%, all the way to the end of his presidency when he left office in January of 2017 to 7.5%. That is a drastic reduction in that. And then Trump brought that 7.5% to 5.4% in August of 2019. Now, yes, he can say that he brought the unemployment rate down. But to say that he's taking credit for everything is completely preposterous because Obama handed him an economy that was doing very well. An unemployment rate, if we just take a look at the graph, it's not like it suddenly started rapidly decreasing even faster under Trump. No. And if we take a look even more from that same time period of August of 2019, when it was at 5.4%, which was an all-time low for black unemployment, very soon after, in eight months, it re-hit that same high that it hit back in 2010, in May of 2020, maybe because of the coronavirus pandemic, that he didn't take proper action. So in eight months, he undid what Obama did for nine to 10 years. So once again, Trump is trying to take credit for the economy and low unemployment rate he inherited, but he's not taking responsibility for the pandemic he ignored. And yes, I will acknowledge if we take a look at this graph up here, 16.8% was in May and it has dropped to 12.1% in September, which is the latest month of recording and reporting that we have currently. But considering the fact that due to Trump not properly managing this and basically we're living in this, you know, half open and half closed, which is just going to prolong the pandemic even longer due to the winter that is coming up, which most scientists are saying is going to be a brutal winter. It's very, it's more than likely that there's going to be another round of lockdowns that take place and thus the unemployment rate will spike again. So once again, this is just Trump trying to take credit for something that he can't take full credit for because honestly, he really didn't do anything except not trash the economy until he mismanaged this pandemic, which led to this happening. So yeah. All right, let's go back to the plan itself. So if we head back here, the next point is security. So he's, it says by signing into law the, the celebrated First Step Act, President Trump has brought common sense criminal justice reform to the American people for the first time in decades, while ensuring that our streets and communities are safe for families and business owners. So let's discuss the First Step Act, because there are definitely a lot of um, a lot of things that are unsure about that, or many things involving the First Step Act that people aren't um, really positive of. So the First Step Act, which obviously had bipartisan support and was very good, it was good but the issue was it didn't have as much of an impact as many people think. And I'm not trying to dig on that. It did obviously have a good impact, but it only applied especially to federal prisoners, which federal prisoners in the federal system make up 181,000 people. And that's a lot of people. But compared to our overall, overall incarcerated population, because we do indeed incarcerate 25% of the world's population, or 25%, we hold 25% of the world's prisoners, despite making up 4% of the po- world's population. 181,000 is is out of 2.1 million. So that's not really that many in comparison. And essentially the law allows thousands of people to return to earn an early release from prison. This could cut more prison sentences in the future, but if we look overall, it's not going to have as much of an effect as basically it's trying to say here as if it's brought like common sense criminal justice reform. So why don't we discuss exactly what the First Step Act does? So the law makes retroactive the the reforms enacted by the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010 um, under Barack Obama, which reduced the disparity between crack cocaine and powdered cocaine sentences at a federal level. So th- this will affect 2,600 federal inmates, which is which is a, which is a very good thing. 
This law also takes several steps to ease mandatory minimum prison sentencing under the federal law. It expands what is considered the safety valve that judges can use to avoid handing down mandatory minimum sentences. It eases on the three strikes rule so people with three or more convictions, including for drug offenses, automatically get 25 years in prison instead of life. Among many other changes, it it restricts the current practice of stacking different gun charges against drug offenders to add possibly decades to someone's prison sentences. And all of these changes will eventually lead to shorter prison sentences in the future. This law also includes something called good time credits that inmates can earn. Basically, inmates who avoid a disciplinary record can currently get 47 credits or up to credits for 47 days per incarcerated year. The law increased that cap to 54, so to allow well-behaved inmates to cut their prison sentences by an additional week for each year they're incarcerated. So this change applies retroactively, which will allow some prisoners, as many as 4,000, to qualify for an earlier release. So there were some problems with early release due to how the legislation was written, but we don't have time to get into all of the legislative background. Um, There's also something called earned time credits, which basically means that prisoners who participate more in vocational and rehabilitative programs will have a way to get more credit to get out of prison earlier. Um, These credits will allow them to be released early to halfway houses or home confinement instead of federal prison. And this could mitigate prison overcrowding, but the hope is that it also um, gives better education to these prisoners, which would reduce the likelihood that an inmate will commit another crime once released, once released, and as a result, reduce both crime and incarceration in the long term. And there is clear research showing that uh, education programs do reduce recidivism. The issue, and that sounds great, and all of this is great, but the issue is that not everyone can benefit from these changes. The system will use an algorithm initially to determine who can cash in the credits that they earn due to good behavior and other things. But certain inmates, those who have high risk, um, are excluded from cashing them in. So basically, we're kind of giving up on those who do have, um, I guess, higher sentences or uh, were accused of um, higher crimes or have a higher risk. So another issue with this algorithm that I talked about involving credits for people with good behavior is that it can often perpetuate racial and class disparities when it comes to people in prison. And these are already deeply embedded within the criminal justice system. For instance, there is an algorithm that, that, that could exclude people from earning credits. There is an algorithm that excludes people for earning credits due to previous criminal history and may overlook black and poor people who are more likely to be incarcerated for crimes, even when they're not more likely to actually commit those crimes. So Although the law puts checks on the algorithm, it is basically turned into a controversial point, which basically is that it may perpetuate class and race disparities. This also excludes undocumented immigrants from being able to earn credit. So people who are undocumented and incarcerated do not have access to this or a pathway towards citizenship. Um, and, the, and, and the main issue is that this isn't as groundbreaking as a lot of people make it out to be. Yes, it's important, but there's a lot more that can be done at the state level because states are a majority of those who incarcerate. Many are more, more state prisons. As I said, federal prisoners only make up 181,000 out of 2.1 million inmates in here. So a majority are done at the state level and much more can be done passed by recent years primarily by many Democrats, which is just reducing prison sentences across the boards, um, many, many times defelonizing uh, drug offenses, as well as legalizing marijuana can have large offense. So this is why it's dubbed as a first step, obviously. Still, it is a step that Congress hasn't taken, but there is much more that needs to be built upon this. And not even all Republicans were in favor. People like Tom Cotton saw this as something that would, um, you know, lead to more dangerous criminals being let out of prison early. Obviously, there were many problems of that due to the fact that high-level offenders weren't even eligible for the credits in the first place. So it's not like high-level offenders would be able to um, get out. So, And overall, long-term, when discussing the First Step Act, 
its effect on mass incarceration is going to be very small. Because even those who acknowledge and really support it very strongly know know that this is the case due to the fact that the federal prison system is fairly small. The law may let out lots of people from prison, thousands of federal inmates out early, but as people have said and has have and as the research has shown, more than 1700 people are released from prison every day. So this is basically equivalent to the First Step Act adding only a few more days to the typical releases to the year. So it's not releasing that many more people as um it said. So one major one one major reason again is it's dealing with the federal court system which is small compared to the overall criminal justice system within um America. And if we look at this, 87% of U.S. prison inmates are held in state facilities. And most state inmates are in for violent non-drug crimes, so it wouldn't even account for local jails where hundreds of thousands of people are held on a typical day. So overall, if Donald Trump were to use his pardon power to pardon every single person who is in federal prison, this would um, reduce the overall incarcerated population from 2.1 million to 1.9 million. So this and this would even be a larger amount, but it also wouldn't undo the fact that there is mass incarceration within our country. And the U.S. would still lead in mass incarceration among every country except one, which is um, El Salvador. Um, we have an incarceration rate of around 593 per 100 per 100,000 people, and only the nation of El Salvador would come out ahead because America would still have a higher incarceration rates of people like of countries like Canada, which is 114 per 100,000, Germany 76 per 100,000, and Japan like 41 per 100,000. So we're still, even if we were, even if the First Step Act were to eliminate every single person as it, I mean, if it was to eliminate every single person who had a prison sentence, we would still be leading um, in one on top of the world's leaders of people of countries that had the highest prison population. So and the issue also is that a lot of this police work in particular is done at the local and state level. There are 18,000 law enforcement agencies within America and only a dozen or so are federal agencies. So this doesn't apply to the vast majority. There's there is a strong push and need for criminal justice reform on a on a on a on a, on a nationwide level if applying to states and the First Step Act only applies to federal prisoners and federal institutions. So while the federal government has the ability to incentivize states to um, adopt civil, similar or specific criminal justice policies, many studies show that um, many efforts such as the 1994 crime bill had little to no impact on the ability for prisoners to be expunged of their record or let out earlier. So by and large, it seems that local municipalities and states will only embrace federal incentives on criminal justice issues if they actually want to adopt the policies being encouraged. So it's not like these states are just going to adopt them unless there's some sort of large incentive to do so. And a lot of this criminal justice reform is going to fall to states because states have the ultimate power and authority to change how they run necessarily their state. So this definitely isn't um, to downplay the effectiveness it definitely was helpful but for trump to run on this as a major criminal justice reform when it when it when it only addresses 13 percent of the prison population is isn't is a little bit dishonest to you know the overall criminal justice issue that we have and criminal justice reform goes far beyond the federal system and has to address things at the state level so it's in, in, in order to understand the first step act in its proper context we have to understand the fact that it's not really going to have that big of an effect on mass incarceration, which is an issue within our country. So, yeah. 
So let's take a look at the um, next one. If we look, uh, his next point is prosperity. The last one was involving security with the First Step Act. So the next point, as we see here, is prosperity. So as the first president to provide long-term funding to historically black colleges and universities, this administration continues to seek immediate and generational advancement for black Americans. This is very performative. This is 100% performative. It's performative because when you let a global pandemic, as I've said, ravage a country that disproportionately affects people of color due to the fact that they are more likely to be frontline workers and as well as to have less access to adequate health care, throwing some money at historically black colleges and universities is virtually irrelevant. If he truly cared about African-Americans and even the American people in general, he wouldn't have let this pandemic ravage the country. It's that simple. So this is very performative as he throws money at colleges. It's not it's not really any, any sort of long term solution. So. Next point, because that was pretty quick, is just his next point is fairness. So as demonstrated through his actions to initiate investment into opportunity zones, as well as address health disparities, wage gaps and necessary um, education reforms, President Trump works every day to advance a fair and just America for the black community. This is practically categorically false on every level. I'm not going to address everything here because it, I think he gets into this in more detail or he does get into more detail below when he dis he's discussing these things. But j just to keep in mind before we get into things, health disparities have only been exacerbated even more with one, the rollback of regulations for pharmaceutical and healthcare industries. And that's not even touching on the fact that there has been a massive impact due to COVID-19 and how that's affected the African-American community, as I talked about earlier. And wealth inequality has only grown under Trump. His tax cuts benefited largely the top 1%. Billionaires like Sheldon Adelson, a major Republican donor who donated $10 million to Trump's campaign in 2016, re received $700 million in taxes due to Trump's tax cuts in 2017. And he just recently donated $75 million to Trump re-election re campaign. Like this is just, this is 100% how money in politics works. Trump got a lot of money from Adelson. He passed tax cuts that saved him $700 million. And then Adelson repays him the favor. Like this is Trump is people like to say Trump isn't a is, isn't a normal politician. Trump is there to drain the swamp. But meanwhile, in less than four years in office, he's already entrenched in politics, entrenched in corporate dollars and and money and rich interests. So this is this is completely futile. Um, Currently, during this global pandemic, billionaires have added over seven or six hundred billion dollars to their total wealth, while a third of Americans can't pay their rent for the past six months, 27 million lost their health insurance, and 2 million went homeless. So to say that under Trump that the wealth gap has done anything but increase is absolutely preposterous. Now, that's obviously less of a critique on Trump and a general critique on the system of capitalism, which is designed to do exactly what it's doing right now, but Trump has absolutely fostered that process. And don't even get me started on school choice, which he's going to probably talk about when it comes to educational reform, because I'm sure he'll address that later when we get into specifics. So let's scroll down. Let's take a look um, at what he talks about here. So there's um, a little infographic here. I obviously will talk about this in more detail when we get to that part. So basically what this is, is this is President Trump's promise to black Americans over four years. So let's take a look at this. His plan is to... President Trump's promise to black American, black America over four years is to increase access to capital in black communities by over by almost $500 billion, um, 3 million new jobs for the black community, creating 500,000 new black owned businesses, increase access to capital in black communities by almost $500 billion, safe urban neighborhoods with highest policing standards, commit to working on a second step act, 
access to better education and job training opportunities, give black churches the ability to compete for federal resources for their community, bring better and tailored health care to address historic disparities. That's actually interesting. I wanted to stop there because he's talking about historic disparities, yet both Trump and Pence, or Pence has explicitly stated, as well as um, his uh, chief economic um, advisor, Larry Kudlow, has have both denied the existence of systemic racism in America. So to think that these people, um, Trump, Pence, any part, anyone in the Trump administration actually knows or wants to solve these problems when they won't even acknowledge that there is any sort of systemic issues is just completely ridiculous. Um, immigration policy that protects American jobs. Oh, there he goes, you know, never, never, never misses a chance to slam immigrants. Um, advance home ownership opportunities and enhance financial literacy in the black community and onshore manufacturing to advance jobs and develop opportunities for black owned businesses. So that's kind of his um, things here. Um, I'm already looking at this and obviously I've taken a look at some of these already and obviously he has already broken some of these promises to say the least. So let's head over to the next page. So first let's take a look at Trump's jobs plan. If we take a look at his jobs plan in general, his jobs plan, his first one is to is to reach even greater levels of historic employment and wage growth for the black um, community. As we talked about that already, um, black community set in 2019, so anyone looking for a job gets one. We already talked about the fact that not only is the unemployment rate spiking right now due to COVID and will most likely spike in the future with new lockdowns, um, it's clear that he's just trying to take credit for the economy and unemployment rate that Obama gave him in that period. So there's that. His next one is seek infrastructure funding that will lead to widespread growth in the annual and fi- in the annual 500 billion federal contracting opportunities. This is completely BS. And the reason I know that it's BS is because that um, if we take a look in general, when it comes to manufacturing under Donald Trump or infrastructure, which one, whichever one was specifically mentioned regarding this, if we take a look in general at this, infrastructure funding has not been the case. No action has been evident regarding infrastructure. His promise to, this is the same promise actually that he made back in 2016. And he promised back in 2016 to invest $550 billion in American infrastructure, yet this has not occurred. It would definitely cost a lot to fix our nation's roads, bridges, and dams. And there was once a tentative agreement with Democrats in Congress for a $2 trillion um, infrastructure plan. Basically, Trump said that there was a 500, when the, when he was asked about his $550, $550 billion infrastructure pro, um, promise, his, his spokesman said in January that he pointed us to an order that Trump issued in 2017 that proposed a rule change in January of 2020. They said that the changes will reduce the time needed to obtain permits for infrastructure projects. But none of that exists. None of that addresses the $550 uh, pledge in general. So, I mean, it's pretty clear that he has not taken any action regarding infrastructure. And Trump actually famously stormed out of a meeting with Democrats regarding infrastructure. So he's not done anything on that front. Moving on to the next point, it says to grow... Grow minority-owned businesses with additional tax cuts to stimulate hiring and investment. I already spoke about this before. I don't need to speak on it again. I already spoke about how the tax cuts help virtually no one except his donors and people who are in the top 1%. So there's that. If we take a look at manufacturing, because his next thing says, encourage onshore and development of domestic manufacturing to increase supply chain, business development, and employment. So if we take a look at Trump involving manufacturing, 
He also said that back in 2016, he was going to bring back manufacturing. But if we take a look at this, and despite the fact that he's saying it, regarding this, manufacturing employment did increase from mid-2017 to early 2019, but that was at the same rate that it did under Obama. So this idea that he's massively increasing manufacturing is just completely false. And for the year of early 2019 and early 2020, manufacturing employment stagnated. And that was even before COVID. So we can't attribute it to that. And this was during this year-long stagnation. The economy was still expanding. So it's not like we were in any sort of like recession or stagnation overall when it came to the economy. Infrastructure just wasn't expanding. And there was nothing really special about Trump's two-year manufacturing growth other than to say he probably benefited from a synchronized global economy or global growth, which is um, probably pretty rare due to the fact that the economy often isn't synchronized. Um, But if we look at his gross manufacturing output by um, quarter, his output rose during his first year and a half, but it wasn't much faster than most of Obama's presidency. And since then, the output has stagnated or declined. So if we, even if we look at hourly earnings of production and non-supervisory employees, hourly earnings for manufacturing workers continue to rise at the same rate they did under Obama, and they didn't gain ground on earnings for many private sector workers as a whole. So if we're, if honestly, the whole point of this is that Trump is trying to say that he's going to increase manufacturing, but a lot of these promises that he's making were the same ones that he made back in 2017 or 2016 when he was running. So... Let's see, what else do we have here? So we're looking at manufacturing in general. We take a look at opportunity zones, things of that sort. That kind of gets into education in a sense. Um, $20 billion towards broadband. A lot of these issues and a lot of the things that I have a problem with is when you're running as an incumbent, you have to prove that you've done stuff. And a lot of these areas, including manufacturing, including um, infrastructure, he hasn't done anything in the past four years to warrant us believing that he's going to take any action on these because he hasn't done it before. So let's take a look at black-owned businesses. So if we take a look at some of this involving contracting and uh, the PPP, the issue with a lot of this is, one, the Paycheck Protection Program, the the funding has run out for that. People are not receiving their uh, Paycheck Protection um, from the federal government due to the fact that Trump is not fostering an agreement within um, the Senate. And he doesn't even have the votes to do it. Senate Republicans are already saying that they are not going to support a stimulus package or um, or measure before the election. So it's not like that is really going to happen. So if we move down, um, education. Education is huge. Education is definitely um, very important. So If we take a look at educational opportunities, federal, state, and local community partnership to close failing schools to replace with full school choice and education opportunity to put American parents back in control over their children's futures. There is a a large issue with this. And the large issue with this whole idea about school choice is that school choice is a, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, school choice is a short-term solution. School choice helps the, the, the few kids that are able to move out of their neighborhood and go to a better school. What that doesn't solve is it doesn't solve the overall problem, which is that the school that they're going to is garbage in the first place. The, 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 the place to do so is more, more funding to those schools. And through a lot, many of Trump's policies, I mean, his, his education secretary, Betsy DeVos, has advocated for cutting funding to many different programs. So... 
And once again, of course, he, you know, like clockwork, brings up the vital role of historically black colleges and universities, trying to say that, you know, he's somehow trying to help African-American education when that has clearly not been the case due to the fact that he's letting a pandemic ravage this entire country, which disproportionately affects African-Americans. So let's see what else there is here. Better and cheaper healthcare. Oh, this is going to be good. So if we're looking in general, um, he's talking about a lot of things involving price control, um, talking about um, opportunity to be in charge of your own health care and choose your own doctor. This, the, 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 this doesn't have any substance to it. That, that, that doesn't say anything. How? What's, how so? Currently, he's in the process of removing or getting rid of Obamacare, which is very confusing considering the fact that he's not, he hasn't offered any sort of substantive replacement. And if this is supposed to be his replacement, then, well, this is not going to work out well for Donald Trump or for the American people, moreover. Um, we take a look at longstanding healthcare disparities, eliminate longstanding healthcare disparities. How is he going to do that? I mean, he's talking about investments into causes and cures for kidney disease. Okay, guess what? A lot of these are pre-existing conditions, and Trump has not put forward a plan to cover people with pre-existing conditions. Does he say anything about pre-existing conditions here? Let's see. I don't see anything on this page at all involving pre-existing conditions when it comes to better and cheaper health care. I see nothing on here involving pre-existing conditions. So Trump keeps saying he's always going to protect pre-existing conditions, yet he's trying to repeal Obamacare, which protects pre-existing conditions and does not say how he's going to pay for it. And a lot of this, defend religious freedom exemptions to respect religious believers and always protect life. Interesting. Well, considering the fact that low income and predominantly African American women are those most affected by um, unwanted pregnancies and thus benefit most from having um, the option of abortion when that is the best option for them, that's going to disproportionately affect them right there. So that is unfortunate. All right, let's see what else is here. Talk about safety and justice. This is going to be interesting. Continue to make historic improvements to the criminal justice system through common sense actions like the First Step Act, including increased use of drug rehabilitation versus drug incarceration. I already talked about how the First Step Act is good, but it doesn't cover the actual issue, which is mass incarceration. Mass incarceration happens at a at a state level. Mass incarceration incurs at a state level. So to, to, to say that somehow he's going to expand upon the First Step Act unless he's planning on doing this on a state level, is not going to be as effective as he would have hoped. This is interesting. He gets down to here talking about a national clemency program. Um, great, great. Um, I, I, th- why has that not happened yet? Why, what, wait, like, this, is, this is my issue. When incumbents put out plans, the question is, why didn't you already do it? And Trump likes to do this with Biden all the time, which makes absolutely no sense because Biden wasn't president. He was vice, he was a senator and then vice president, which are not the same positions as president. You have much more power as a president than you do as a vice president or a senator. So to consider that, it really doesn't make a whole lot of um, sense here. But obviously, when with a lot of this with Trump, a lot of these are just literally copy pasted from his 2016 plan. So Let's see. Restore safety to America's great cities by working with police departments, community leaders, mental health professionals. Trump has really made fun of like social workers and mental health professionals when it comes to policing to install the most responsive professional and accountable models of policing, including diversity training and and, and accreditation standards. That's weird, considering the fact that literally Trump said that he wanted to cut white privilege and, and, and racial sensitivity training. 
So he wants to include diversity training, but got rid of white privilege and um, racial sensitivity training. Meanwhile, he's trying to push patriotic education within schools that completely just ignores the aspect of slavery or the reasons that African-Americans are in these positions. I mean, he says up here when it comes to better and cheaper health care, he says eliminate, as it says here, eliminate longstanding health care disparities, as you see right there. Yet the fact he won't acknowledge why they exist in the first place, which is due to systemic barriers of poverty and unemployment that African-Americans have experienced for centuries. And he doesn't want that to be taught in schools. So this doesn't really actually work. This does not help the African-American community in substantive ways when he does this. So let's see. Let's, Let's see what else is here. When we're talking about that, he includes that a second chance hiring to get rehabilitated citizens with criminal record back on on their job on the job. A lot of this, it just doesn't make sense why this wasn't passed first in, in his first term. Like a lot of this was is very achievable. One, it's probably achievable because it's so broad. Anything could be considered a, a success. But also when it comes to people who have criminal records, why would he not be trying to do this in his first term? Considering the fact that he's completely let a pandemic ravage the country, it's hard for me to believe that he's actually focused on any of these other problems right now. All right, the last section. So basically, um, some of his policies for uh, prosperous black communities are champion federal policy reforms to advance home ownership initiatives. Okay, why was that not done before? Partner with local leaders and black communities to ensure maximum federal support for neighborhood revitalization. Awesome. Wouldn't that be a better policy than implementing school choice? Because school choice leaves the neighborhoods just in shambles. Well, revitalizing neighborhoods is literally the antithesis antithesis of school choice, which is to rebuild and revitalize those neighborhoods and schools, which would allow students to have a good education close to them. So I really, I really don't understand where that kind of makes sense or um, comes into play. So kind of getting down to the last couple um, sections here. Um, we talked about here, make Juneteenth a holiday. That's pretty interesting, considering that, one, he is advocating for patriotic education, as I spoke about in schools, which does not include a lot of those events. Clear, we don't even learn, at least in my school and many other schools I know, Juneteenth is not taught as a national holiday. It is it is not considered a national holiday, or at least um, even thought in schools, or even taught the history of Juneteenth, why it exists in many different aspects of that sort. So, and Trump even... He almost held a rally, his Tulsa, Oklahoma rally on Juneteenth until he received backlash. And it actually was on an anniversary of a massacre that occurred within Tulsa. And he, then, then he moved it. And this was the rally that Herman Cain, one of his advisors, attended and then ended up passing away because he caught coronavirus. So there's that. I find it odd that he's saying that. That almost feels like he's just like appealing, you know, pandering to the black community, considering he's also pushing for a lot of African-American history to be pushed out of schools. I mean, he's criticized the 1619 Project, which does a beautiful job to explain the history of America and how that plays into a lot of what is going on currently and a a lot of the disparities that exist. Next point, prosecute the KKK and Antifa as terrorist organizations and make lynching a national hate crime. This is a huge issue here because what he's doing is he's equivocating white supremacists with anti-fascists. Do you even know what Antifa is? Joe Biden was right when he said that it is an ideology, not a group. Hey, everyone here listening or watching right now, do you, do you, are are you against fascism? Awesome. Then you ascribe to Antifa. That's literally what it means. People who take it too far and radicalize it, of course, there are radical people on the left, radical people on the right. I mean, despite the fact that the FBI director currently says that the largest 
threat of terrorism is by far right white supremacist groups, then this the, 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 this whole notion that Antifa is going to be described solely as you know the radicals that you know ascribe to that ideology, but almost all the time when there are clashes of Antifa, they are clashing with current fascist groups that are protesting or you know trying to incite violence. So the, the, this whole idea of Trump equivocating a, a group of symbol of hate, which is the Ku Klux Klan, to a symbol of fighting fascism is literally the first thing that a dictator would do is to associate the KKK with Antifa, which are two very different organizations. And the issue with making Antifa a terrorist organization is because when you make something a terrorist organization, people who are like accused of terror, of, of terror attacks, they, they, they often lose their right to due process. Therefore, the U.S. government can lock you away because you're a member of Antifa simply because they think that you're not, you don't ascribe to fascism. <laughs> like, that's pretty scary to think about. So it, th- this whole equivocation here is very scary and evident that, don- that, that Donald Trump does not want to stand any criticism, especially from, you know, people who say, you know, Antifa is an idea, not an organization. So, yeah. Fuel black farmers and access to healthy food to address food disparities. That's interesting. Wouldn't you think that he maybe wouldn't be having his trade wars with China right now if he was if he was worried about the farmers, considering he's had to bail out the farmers multiple times due to his idiotic tariffs and trade war wars with China? Seems like that's not working out very well. And it seems like he created a problem that he used taxpayer money to solve. So there's that. Favorable trade deals to bring back manufacturing jobs to help black contractors, farmers, inventors, and consumers. This is what this is the issue. Literally, I think Trump literally took part of his other plan and literally just put the word black in front of it. Because I swear I saw create favorable trade deals to bring back manufacturing jobs and help contractors, farmers, inventors, and consumers. So he's literally just putting black in front of it to be like, look, we include you too. Like, we already talked about how he has not brought back manufacturing. He hasn't done anything revolutionary with manufacturing. And much of it was just increasing, not increasing just letting the manufacturing that was increasing under Obama to continue to increase under Donald Trump. So there's that. Another one is defend religious liberty and African-American churches that lift the conscience of our nation. I mean, yeah, okay, cool. I, I don't, how is that a policy? Like, shouldn't you have been doing that all along? Like, like this, this whole thing of him putting it on his website that's basically saying, oh, yeah, we, we, we respect African-Americans. They should be able to go to church. Like, yeah, no, duh. Why is it on your website if you're not directly pandering? Like, th- there's no reason that religious liberty, especially for African-Americans, would be under threat unless there were people who were actively threatening the religious liberty of African-Americans. That's, that, that, that's literally Trump is admitting that the religious liberty of African-Americans is under threat by primarily right wing groups. And he's literally just saying, we're going to defend it. Awesome. That's not a policy. You should just be doing that because you, you, you have a duty to protect all your citizens, not because that, that's like a policy proposal. So that makes no sense. And the last point is collaborate with cities and, and counties to address mental illness and substance abuse. How? What are you going to do? A lot of this is so vague. And I talked about this before. If you take a look on my YouTube, I also went over um, Trump's second term policies, which are even funnier than this. Like, I feel like someone sat down and just from his campaign and just like wrote all of this out. A lot of this is still so broad or like vague, like collaborate with cities, defend. How are you going to do that? Like, what, 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 what exactly are you going to do? And it doesn't look like there's a lot of substantive policy here. But yeah, overall, 
I thought that was overall pretty um, interesting. I enjoyed discussing that. Um, if you guys have any questions or anything, um, feel free to email me about that. I will link to this direct PDF so you guys can take a look at more of it if you'd like, as well as um, as well as a link to my YouTube, obviously, as I said, so you guys can watch this, which I think can be a more impactful um, or like engaging experience. So, overall, thank you so much for watching, for, so much for watching, and um, hope you all have a good night. Thank you. Thank you.